Welcome to the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire you to make the most of your journey in health and performance. Each episode will provide an in-depth discussion on a specific topic related to human performance. If you're a growth-minded individual seeking knowledge and better solutions, this podcast is for you. We're glad you're listening in and we're excited to learn alongside you. My name is Gabe Derman, and I am joined by my co-host, Todd Zukin. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. David Petrino. David is a physical therapist with a PhD in neuroscience, and his resume will absolutely blow you away. David moved to the United States from Australia to study computational neuroscience at Harvard Medical School, MIT, and NYU. He currently serves as a Director of Rehabilitation Innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System. He is also the Chief Mad Scientist of Not Impossible Labs, a group that crowdsources accessible technology solutions for high-impact humanitarian problems. David also works with Red Bull High Performance, the Brooklyn Nets, and the U.S. Olympic team to use evidence-based technologies to improve athletic performance. In today's conversation, we sit down with David to talk about creativity. What is it? Why is it important? And how do we become more creative? Later in the episode, David shares with us a couple of groundbreaking research projects he and his team are currently working on. To stay up to date on David's work, follow at Petrino Lab on Twitter. He is also the author of Hacking Health, How to Make Money and Save Lives in a Health Tech World. We enjoyed our conversation and know you will too. David, thank you for being with us here this morning. Thanks so much for having me. We had the opportunity to hear you speak and sit down with you at Leaders in Sport this summer in New York City. Todd and I both walked away from that experience feeling like we had to learn more and agreed that we had to get you on this podcast. <laughs> we're very appreciative that you're here with us today and we're ready to start talking about creativity. My first question to you is how do you define creativity and what does creativity mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a loaded question because uh, you know creativity is one of those words that we've just sort of brought into our consciousness and often we don't think to sort of stop and define it. Um, I think it's quite easy to define. Typically, I think of creativity as your ability to create something new that is useful. So um, I always like to think about, you know, the fact that it has to be new. It has to be something that someone has never done before. It has to be useful. Um, so it's not just you're doing something, you're creating something new for the the sake of creating something new, it actually has to be something that solves a problem. Um, and then unlike a once-off, uh, a creative person is able to do this over and over again. So it's it's not just you got lucky and you had a single strike of innovation, it's your ability to continue to repeat that process over and over and continue to create new things that are useful. All right, so what I hear is the ability to create something new and not just do that one time, but the ability to continue to do that. Uh, where does that stem from? Like, why is it important that humans are creative? Well, I think in general, um, it, it it starts off everything everything that humans do start off with survival, right? It's it's um, it starts off with our ability to come up with solutions to problems that we haven't seen before um, within a community and allow the community to survive. And so um, organisms that are adaptive, organisms that can see a problem and overcome the problem, tend to be the ones that will often survive longer than their peers. And so um, I, I think early on, our ability to be creative was tightly linked to our ability to survive circumstances that our peers wouldn't. Um, and so, that's probably the best explanation I've heard for why creativity has survived over the years. And during your talk back at Leaders in Sport, uh, you talked a little bit about having like an inclusive brain and the ability to have like uh, excitatory connections, uh, inhibitory connections. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, 
you know, if we're going to be, this is very reductionist, but uh, a, a good way to sometimes think about the brain um, uh, to boil things down is that we all know that um, the brain is full of neurons, which are these, these cells that make up a lot of brain tissue. And we know that neurons can communicate to one another in order to sort of send messages across from one area of the brain to another. And we know that those communications can be excitatory. So we can, we can sort of excite other neurons um, or they can be inhibitory. So one neuron can actually dampen the activity of another neuron. And typically in our brains, we have networks of excitatory neurons because it's useful for us to have these networks. In, in specific areas of the brain. So for instance, you've got the motor area of your brain. And uh, if you wanna produce a movement, the motor area of your brain is gonna excite one set of neurons and it's gonna, that's gonna create a chain reaction that excites another set. And then finally we fire on some muscles and your muscles move. Um, but we also create these inhibitory networks which allow us to, um, uh, to partition different areas of the brain and make sure that if one area of your brain gets excited, another area of your brain that doesn't need to be excited at that time doesn't get excited by excitatory activity going on in the brain. Now, that's really important because, you know, if all of your brain is active all at once, that's a seizure, you know, and you do, we don't want seizures to happen. So there is this important function that having a lot of inhibitory control has on on our brain but you know there's also uh, a payoff to that which means that often we really silo a lot of our senses if we completely unmasked all of this inhibition um we might actually start to see linkages in some of the you know some of the functions that our brain does so you know you might have some odd sensations like you could smell a color or you could see a sound that's coming in or hear a flavor that you're tasting. Um, so uh, this, you know, this sort of interaction between the um, excitatory connections and the inhibitory connections allows our brain to partition certain functions, allows us to um, not confuse different sensations with one another. Um, but also on the, on the other hand, um, it, it can sometimes narrow our scope of the world and make us less creative. So all of this is to say, you don't want a brain that is wildly interconnected and always sort of one area is firing up the other, but also we should consider the fact that our brain, by do, by creating all of these inhibitory connections, our brain sometimes very deeply narrows the scope of um, of of, uh, of of what we can perceive. And so, there are a lot of theories about creativity uh, that that talk about this idea of the over-inclusive brain. So, the idea being that people who are more creative, who are who are just natively more creative they're born more creative. These folks have these um, minds that don't necessarily have as, as, as many strict barriers as their peers who can only perceive the world in one way. These people have an over-inclusive brain, so they can sort of uh, connect areas of the brain that other people can't, and therefore they're capable of viewing problems or perceiving situations in ways that mainstream neurotypical folks aren't. That's really fascinating. Um, and it makes me think, you know, you mentioned that you have some people that just naturally have this over-inclusive brain. How much of creativity then is genetic and how much can you actually change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that um, in terms of uh, can we all learn to be more creative? I, I, absolutely, we can learn to, to be more creative. Some people come from, from different baselines of creativity. Um, and, but, but certainly, 
I, I think that there are lots of things that we can do to understand um, how to be more creative. There's lots of things that we can do to um, remind ourselves to engage in different things that that um, and engage in different habits and practices that would make us more creative. Um, and uh, there are many experiences that we can have that that will also just inherently make us more creative because our brains are always changing and we always have this opportunity to um, uh, you know rewire and um, uh, and and change our perceptions yeah it's uh it's again just very very fascinating and and there's a lot of questions that I want to get into especially regarding how we can learn to become more creative. But before we do that, I just kind of had a thought, like, when did you first start getting into this? And when did you first start researching, like the idea of like, what makes humans creative? How do we become more creative? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I think I, I started um, getting, you know, excited and interesting, interested in this idea uh, when I started working in health technology innovation. Um, so a lot of my role currently at Mount Sinai uh, Hospital, which is a big hospital system in New York City, um, a lot of my role is to seek out new and disruptive ways of doing things that allow our patients to get you know, the best possible standard of care. Um, uh, also in pursuit of that, that big goal, we also work with high performance athletes and we try to, again, look out there for new techniques and new technologies that are going to make athletes perform better than they have in the past. Um, and as I was sort of working in this space, I started meeting some really creative individuals. I started meeting some really innovative folks. And I also started to ruminate myself on how I can be more innovative uh, because, you know, it's my job. It's my job to be innovative. Uh, and so, uh, one of the things that I started thinking about was, is this a fluke? Do I keep hitting on these interesting and exciting projects just by accident? Or is there a process to, to what I'm doing? So I, as a neuroscientist myself, I started digging into this concept of creativity and this concept of innovation. And can, can these concepts be taught? can they be enhanced or is it something that you're born with? Because I think that we, in many ways, we, we kind of fetishize uh, innovation and creativity. We kind of say, oh, that's a creative over there. I can't, I can't be like him or I can't be like her. Um, that's, that's something that I don't have in me. Um, and that's just, you know, the, the literature tells us, the science tells us that that's, absolutely not true. We can all learn to be a little bit more creative. Um, and certainly the way that I got into it was um, I wanted to better understand how I could be good at my job. I wanted to, you know, really work to get better at some of these basic functions of, of how I saw my job, which was always challenging things, always trying to push things to another level. Um, and, uh, and always coming up with the the newest and the weirdest ideas. Yeah, that's really cool. I appreciate uh, the background and a little bit of the perspective of how you got into this. So Todd and I are sitting here. Uh, we talk every day and and we're curious. So how how can we learn to become more creative individuals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, there's a few different steps uh, to you know, understanding how to be more creative. Um, and, and I think it's important, we, you know, we, we gave a pretty basic uh, definition of creativity, um, which, which I think is valid. I think it, it's worthwhile, but I think it's also worth mentioning um, that uh, creativity tends to, you know, or most of the experts on creativity tend to acknowledge that, um, your ability, you know, we we spoke about creativity is the ability to create something new and useful. Um, and most of the experts on creativity would acknowledge that that ability comes from an interaction with a few different things. Uh, it comes from an interaction of 
aptitude, your, your skill or intelligence in a certain field. Um, it comes from process, your, both your understanding of process as well as your ability to engage in process. So, you know, so for, uh, and what I mean by process is what's the, what's the standard operating procedure for the job that you do or the standard process for achieving what you want to achieve. So um, that becomes important to creativity. Um, and then just your general environment. Um, so are you in a highly restrictive environment? Are you, um, are you in a completely open and free environment? Uh, you know, what is, what is the nature of your environment and um, the tolerances that you have within that environment to try new things and, and, and engage in new things. So your ability to be creative is typically an interplay of, of, of those three things. And so I think the first thing to be creative that speaks to aptitude and process is making sure that your your brain your 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 sort of general consciousness is in a state that is um, appropriate for learning and for appropriate for trying new things. So you know the first thing that you need to do is really get a good understanding of you know what's in front of you. What what are you trying to solve? What are you trying to do? You know one of the things that we talk about in in this. Um, in this context is the the concept the concept of salience so highly creative people in their day-to-day -day, they typically have a really good understanding of why precisely they're doing what they're doing meaning they're not just showing up to their job and mindlessly you know tapping away at a computer or or filling in a spreadsheet they know what they're doing they know why they're doing what they're doing and they understand the larger context of their task in the process of the organization or you know or, or the larger task or mission of what they're working on so having a good sense of that is super important um, from an aptitude standpoint it makes you aware of why you're doing what you're doing and then from a process standpoint it helps you to understand you know, that whether you're a cog in a much larger machine or if you are the machine itself, it just helps you to understand where you are in that process. Um, the, you know, the other thing that we talk about when we're trying to, uh, you know, um, get, your, get your brain into a state where it's ready for, uh, for creativity is this just idea of engagement and motivation. So we know over and over again, we've seen this, that people who are engaged and, and motivated, their brains are more likely to be creative and, and ready to engage in, in learning. Um, we see this in the, the teaching field, like everybody has ex experienced this at, at some point in their life, the understanding that they are going to be more effective at learning a new thing if they are engaged in that. So, you know, like um, you're, you're going to pay attention to the teacher that you like most in class. You're going to read the book that you're more motivated to uh, read because of, you know, whatever else is going on in your life. You're gonna read that book first before you read other books that you're less motivated to understand or, or learn about. Um, so making sure that you have a good level of engagement and motivation is super important for, uh, making sure that your, your brain is in the right, uh, space for creativity. It's super hard, for instance, to be creative in a job that you don't care about, because why, why would you want to create something new that is useful in a job or working for an employer that you don't like, or you don't care about that there's, there's no motivation there to to do something that moves the needle because you still just want to get out of that job as quickly as you can. So these, you know, so these are not just tips for people who want to be more creative. These are tips for, um, you know, bosses who want to create environments where their workers are more, more creative, understanding the need to create engagement and motivation um, as you go.
Yeah. So thank you. I appreciate all that. And kind of what I heard is that, you know, if we take away a couple of things from there is that the aptitude and process are two really important things. So obviously just your natural ability to do something and then understanding what it is you're supposed to be doing. Those two things have to line up. And then having a sense of purpose is a huge factor in being creative. So understanding kind of like your why mm -hmm. and Absolutely. why we're actually doing this. And then the third thing that you had mentioned is the environment. And that's something that we want to go down now is creating environments that will allow people to become more creative. So you can give us an overview and then we can kind of get specific and in, in a couple of different ideas. And you had mentioned bosses. So how, how do bosses create environments? And we'll kind of get into that. But just um, if we take like a 50,000 foot view of it, the importance of environment on creativity. Yeah, and and we can we can go down two roads with this. Uh, the first is um, environments that foster all of the uh, sort of cognitive processes that I I just mentioned. This idea of salience, this idea of engagement and enjoyment and motivation. Um, that you know you can you can think about things that prime the tank for creativity. And absolutely, those are things that prime the tank. So making sure that people, uh, you know, like I, I think uh, the best books for for something like this is, is you know, reading books like The Culture Code and, uh, you know, by Dan Coyle and, um, uh, and you know, uh, Setting the Table, uh, which is another book that really focuses on culture and hiring and, and things like that. Um, but really, you know, focusing on um, the idea that um, if you want to prime the pump for your you and your colleagues to be highly creative um, and hopefully innovative, uh, what you want to do is you want to create a place where everyone's excited to come to work every day. Everyone has a high sense of purpose. They understand why they're showing up, they understand why they're doing what they're doing. Nothing feels futile or pointless or mechanical or robotic to them. Everyone is motivated to show up, give it their best and constantly, and because they're giving it their best, they're constantly searching for ways to um, do better. They're constantly searching for ways to think outside of the box to, um, you know, continually, be uh, making their process better, making their process more effective and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one element of, of uh, environment and how environment plays into creativity. I, I think the second element uh, of environment is uh, constantly creating an environment where we're being challenged, constantly creating an environment where we're being exposed to new ideas, we're being exposed to diversity, um, becomes really, really important. So um, there's been a ton of studies that, uh, that show us that um, if you can place people into diverse environments, and that can be uh, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, but also just uh, diversity of environment, um, you know, so you're not just showing up to the same cubicle every day, you're not having the same work experience, but, uh, but creating all sorts of diverse environments and challenging ideas and ideas that don't fit someone's status quo or consistent lived experience, um, that is going to produce a much more creative environment for for the person that uh, is working with you and that's simply because our brains do like to get on a steady track it, it's more um, from an energy efficiency standpoint for our brains and, and our brains are huge energy hogs for our body and so for us to be you know successful as humans typically what we want is to do the same thing that we do every day to maintain our survival with as little energy as possible. So where possible, our brain is just like, okay, I like patterns and I like to do the same thing every day. 
And our brains are always going to guide us toward that. It's going to guide us toward this seems to work for us every single day and we don't die and we stay fed and we stay clothed and we stay with a, a roof over our head. So let's just keep doing this because it feels safe. Um, and, and so that, that is the direction that our brain wants to pull us. Um, but that also creates a very curated experience for us and it, it doesn't give us too much um, uh, flexibility or permission or freedom to deviate from that. So in terms of the, the role that, you, that environment can play on creativity, if we continue to create a commitment to make our environment as diverse as possible, constantly ensure the fact that effortlessly and, and authentically, the people that we work with or work for or, um, or, or uh, you know, manage are constantly just being, you know, uh, challenged and presented with diversity and presented with uh, new experiences all of the time. Um, this is going to make them more creative inherently. Well, yeah, while we're on the topic of environment, I know at Leaders, we also talked about, you know, the novel experience of vacations or having mm -hmm. the opportunity to travel abroad. And you brought up some really interesting stats, which I, would, I hope you'd be able to share here, talking about even just a few weeks of travel, what that can do for your creativity when you come back home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, there's there's a ton of studies at this point that that show us that um, uh, going on vacation, traveling somewhere new, um, and uh, typically the effect is amplified by how new and how different the experience is for you. Um, but on average, it, it's still staggering. You know, uh, people will come back from a couple of weeks away. Uh, typically, you know, if we if we just talk averages, you know, two to three weeks away in a new environment will on average in, increase creativity in the workplace by 25% uh, for someone who's just been away. So uh, just that ability to to go off and um, experience a new culture uh, or experience a new experience, uh, you know, have some sort of new and novel experience that lights up your brain in a way of like, hey, I've never experienced this before. And, and therefore, all of these new networks fire up will make you more creative by, by a factor of 25%, which is pretty incredible when you actually think about it. Um, even more incredible uh, is something that we were also discussing at Leaders um, is just the fact that getting out into nature can create this experience as well. So we we call the environments and the spaces that we um, that are you know are very nature forward. We call them biophilic spaces. That's kind of the scientific terminology around um, uh, around this space, but. Um, for some reason, we are around 15% more creative in a biophilic space. There's been a lot of people who have tried to um, explore why that is. Uh, it's a really hard thing to unpack, as you might imagine, um, but the effects are real. So now, you know, trying to understand the reasons why becomes uh, the, the next big step. One of the theories that has been posited and proposed is um, there's this concept called soft fascination, this idea that, you know, during our day where we're sort of very focused on our work and we're running through and, you know, we're charging through our day and we're trying to complete all of these tasks. Um, and, and so we've got all of this focus. And then when we get home, typically what we try to do is, you know, I don't know, we'll sit down, we'll put the TV on and we'll sort of lean back and watch TV and many of us might think that that's mindless, um, but we're still registering a certain level of concentration to be able to follow what's happening on the TV. So it's actually hard for our brains to completely uh, sort of go into a relaxation state um, when we're watching TV. The other, other alternative is to try to do nothing with our brains. So it's something like, uh, you know, meditation, which is, super you know important and and helpful for things like uh, creativity 
and stress relief and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's a learned skill. So it's something that you need to work at and practice at. And often, you know, I think it's become sort of folklore now that when you go to like employee wellness things, they're like, you should meditate. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I know I should meditate, but I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to do that for 30 minutes every day until I um, become good at meditation. And, um, and so so that that's another way that you can sort of get your brain into a, a state of relaxation and uh, and, and creativity and, and problem solving, um, but it takes training. And so one of the things that that people have seen with studying biophilic spaces is the fact that you can swing your brain into this state of uh, soft fascination. And what soft fascination is, it's it's a very uh, special state that that uh, and and i will point out that this is somewhat controversial this is by no means solid fixed science but there has been about 30 years of literature published on on this concept um where whereby you're watching an, a, a natural scene so you know if, if you imagine watching something like uh water in a lake that's just gently moving or you're watching leaves on a tree that are just gently rustling in the breeze. You're, you're not so unengaged with watching that because of these small movements. Your brain is actually satisfied watching something like this. It's not getting bored because you can zero in on certain details. You can, you know, you can sort of passively just watch this scene unfold. And there's enough action going on in front of you that it still catches your eye, it catches your attention. You're not, you're not bored. But there's also an effortlessness to it. You're, you're not necessarily following a plot line like you would if you're watching TV. You're not trying to do something. You're just taking in what's going on. And that sinks our brain into a situation where it can also assign some resources to passively solving problems that you face through your day. Um, and so it's been... Uh, you know, it's been researched that folks who can engage in a little bit of this, um, even as little as 15 minutes, can become more creative because they're just, uh, they're putting their brain in a state where it can solve some of these problems. Um, I also think that people uh, can slip into this, um, well, I've also heard, I should say, that people can slip into this sort of state of soft fascination in the shower. But rather than having the visual input, it's the sensory input of, you know, the water landing on your skin. It sort of just puts you into this state where you're, you're, uh, um, you're not quite in a meditative state, but you're in a state where you're able to, um, you know, focus a few things out, but also let your brain work in the background and suddenly a big idea might pop into your brain. Yeah, this is this is incredible. And so my mind also goes to so you're in New York City. So that's obviously there's not a lot of biophilic environments. I mean, there's there's some few spots, but so if you're in a big city, how do you how do you take advantage of this or can you create your own environment say in your apartment or in your in your workspace? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. Um and I I think certainly you can um you can find green spaces in New York City, but uh, I also think that it's it's worth mentioning that that's um, not everyone can find green spaces in New York City. It's it's kind of a uh, a, a thing that that more privileged folks uh, get access to and and less privileged folks don't. Um, but I do think that it's possible to create your own experiences. I do think it's it is possible to. Um, you know, find space to to have these experiences um, in your in your day to day. Um, for instance, uh, you know, during the the pandemic, when it when things were really bad in the hospital, um, so March of 2020, uh, my my team and I we created uh, what we called recharge rooms. So these were um, completely synthetic experiences uh, where we allowed healthcare workers to sit in a room where they were surrounded by fake plants, you know, so fake house plants. Um, they had a 
you know, essential oil diffuser that was um, producing a scent that, that smelled like a forest floor. And then they were looking at videos of, you know, high definition nature images. So um, that was just being projected onto a blank white wall and they could just sit for a moment and experience um, this, this uh, you know, general biophilic space. And um, we, we were able to show that actually uh, 15 minutes in the room would reduce perceived stress levels by uh, as much as 60% in these stressed out healthcare workers. And it really helped to re-energize these people who are in crisis. It, it, it helped to, um, it helped to transport people out of the hospital. So even though they couldn't escape the hospital, we were all there for, you know, hours and hours on end at that time. It just transported you somewhere else for a minute, which was really, really important when, you know, when things were quite bad for us that we didn't want to be in the hospital. Um, it, it was just nice to remind yourself that there was something outside of the hospital. Um, and that's just me speaking for myself, but um, certainly that was also something that was relayed by many of the recharge room users. Um, so I definitely think that there are pathways to um, creating these experiences synthetically or, you know, in a way that is is more accessible to everybody just with a few fake plants and, you know, and some imagery, if if that's all you can get, the, the effect is still there for sure. Um, but I also think it should underline the importance of making nature available to everyone. Um, you know, on a on a policy level and a government level. So that that's really cool. And one of the things that you know I think about as you're mentioning that is in regards to the travel is the ability, you know, say we travel to India versus Canada with us being in the United States, and because we have to tap into different areas of our brain and problem solving areas of our brain, uh, we could actually become more creative when we get back to the United States, I think is really cool. And it makes me think about some of the artists and musicians that'll, that we hear about that do travel when they look to become motivated. And one of the other things I was thinking about when you talked about novel experiences and something that we've heard uh, through the media and just as they become more popular is the role of psychedelics and the role that psychedelics can play in creativity. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that psychedelics are, are certainly like a, a a big uh you know big topic right now that they they're, they're starting to be accepted into mainstream medicine as as different interventions for uh all sorts of um uh, psychological conditions um but i i also think that you know for a long time you know you, know, you mentioned musicians i think musicians and artists and and other professionals have really uh, turned to psychedelics for um, inspiration for creativity um, in the past. It it all cycles back to um, some of the neurophysiology we were talking about earlier with the ex excitatory and inhibitory connections in the brain. What we know that a lot of psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD tend to do is that they unmask a lot of inhibition that your brain usually puts in place for you to be a functional human, um, you know, and be able to navigate the world safely. Um, and what these psychedelics can do is uh, create opportunities for areas of your brain that have previously never been connected to be connected. Um, and sometimes that can be incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly helpful and useful for uh, for creativity. Other times, it can be um, decidedly bad and terrifying and scary because it creates these perceptual events that um, that our body or ourselves just generally are, are not ready for. Um, and other times, it can be completely useless. You know, like there, there's a, a ton of stories of folks on on tripping pretty hard on psychedelics who think that they've solved you know the life the universe and everything and they they write it down and then when they read what they've written the next day it's just complete nonsense but <laughs> but you know um at the time they they thought they were really onto something so certainly i think that um this experience of unmasking and creating the opportunity for different brain areas to 
communicate that ordinarily wouldn't can certainly uh, place you in a state uh, of heightened creativity. Uh, I think what more and more the, the scientific consensus is, is pointing toward um, is, is the fact that these experiences, you know, if you want to optimize your output from these experiences, guidance becomes really important. And I, I think that the scientific consensus is saying that, but also, you know, this is something that traditional medicine has known for thousands of years. You know, you, you have shamans who guide people through ayahuasca experiences. You don't just give someone the medicine and walk away and let them sort themselves out. You, um, you, you have individuals who have been trained for years in traditional medicine who help the person um, get what they want out of the experience by, by guiding the experience for them. So I, I think that certainly um, there is a role for, you know, substances like psychedelics to make you more uh, creative, but I would also say, you know, that's not the invitation to go, <laughs> hey, I'm going to go eat some mushrooms and tell everyone I'm get, making myself more creative. It doesn't really, that, it doesn't really work that way without particular guidance. You know, you, um, you want someone who's knowledgeable to guide you through. Um, otherwise, you're just sort of throwing darts at a dartboard. You, you may get a highly creative experience or you may just, you know, um, end up being quite unproductive in, in the process. We got you. So guided and make sure you're with a professional when we're doing that. So uh, let's uh, talk about some of the creative work that you're involved with right now. We hear you're doing some groundbreaking work with brain computer interface startups and ALS. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the mission of um, my lab and, and the team that I work with is um, we, we tend to just think that health innovation takes too long. Um, the, the average amount of time it takes to get a technology in healthcare from bench to bedside is 17 years. Um, we think that that is a dumb number. We especially think that's a dumb number when there's so many people uh, who want solutions now. Um, and so what we do is we work with companies and technologies that we think are disruptive, that we think have you know, a real good opportunity to change the lives of our patients um, or our or the athletes that we work with. And we work with those companies and we say, hey, we like what you're doing. We want to see if we can accelerate your path from, you know, uh, from discovery to mainstream use um, as quickly as we can. One of the technologies uh, that we're working on, we, we've long been uh, involved in brain-computer interface research. Brain-computer interfaces are technologies that record brain activity, and then they use that brain activity that they're recording to power an external device. So that could be a computer or a robotic arm or you know something, something else, um, like a cochlear implant allowing you to hear. But at its general, you know, at, it, at its most basic level, that's what a brain-computer interface does. It records brain activity, and it creates an output, allowing someone to control an external device. So um, uh, we're currently working with a company called Synchron, um, doing uh, their first in human clinical trials. Uh, this company is really cool because uh, their brain computer interface device, the device that actually records uh, brain activity uh, from the brain, is built in the form of a stent. So a, a stent is a device that has been used for years in neurosurgery and cardiology that holds open blood vessels. Um, and in previous brain-computer interface projects, you know, the only way to get electrodes into the brain was pretty direct. You cut open the skull, you stick the electrodes into the brain, and, and that's how you record brain activity. This company has done it a little bit differently. They've created a, an endovascular stent that has electrodes on it. So the device actually gets into the body through the jugular vein, which is actually a very minimally invasive way to get a device into the body. And then it travels through different blood vessels until it's sitting up uh, right up near our motor cortex, which is an area of the brain that controls movement. And from there, it can record brain activity that is being produced when someone tries to think about movement or attempt to move. 
Um, and so from there, we can map different movement attempts onto different tasks. So for instance, um, try to move your left foot and that will give you a left click of a mouse. Try to move your right foot and we can identify as that as the right click of your mouse and so on and so forth. So we are uh, currently working on this project. We've uh, had one individual uh, implanted for three months. He is a gentleman with um, ALS and he's been completely locked in for a number of years, meaning he has a small amount of movement left available to him in his mouth and his eyes. And, and that's about all, all he can move of his body. Um, and after three months of using this device, he now has uh, independent cognitive control of a Zoom of of using Zoom on his computer. So he can he can uh, you know move his cursor over and start a Zoom conversation. He can move his cursor around and send an email, and uh, and and he can also you know Google things um, completely under cognitive control, which is which is pretty cool. Come on, that's unbelievable. <laughs> it's super exciting. Yeah. And are you planning to uh, implant some stents in some more people or what can we look for moving forward with this? Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, this is a safety feasibility trial. So we're going to be implanting um, uh, five more individuals uh, in the in the next couple of years. And then once that is done and and we're convinced and and satisfied that this is a safe technology meaning that you know we don't see any unexpected adverse events from implanting the tech um we, we're then going to move into what's called a pivotal clinical trial where we'll really start to implant a larger subset of the population and try to show that this technology can significantly improve lives of our patients. So really exciting uh, next couple of years ahead for that technology, I think. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you can kind of see if we have success with that, where that can lead to in terms of treating patients of, with ALS and not only ALS, but all sorts of diseases, which is really incredible. So best of luck to you and your team with that. And we hope to uh, hear about some of the successes with that. Uh, we've also come to understand you're doing some work when in the virtual reality space with patients experiencing chronic pain. We'd love to hear more about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we started working in this space. Uh, we were kind of inspired by folks in the uh, that we were working with who have who live with spinal cord injury. Um, so uh, around eighty percent of people with spinal cord injury will have a condition called neuropathic pain, which is pain that they experience that isn't related to an acute injury. You know, it's it's related to their nerves telling their brain that they're in pain, but um, there's no real injury that's occurring. It, it, it's entirely nerve-based. The nerve is sending the wrong signal to the brain. Um, and so it can be very disruptive to life. It, it can be very um, varied. So it might be that your nerve is telling your, your brain that your foot is encased in a block of ice. And so suddenly your foot is just freezing and freezing cold or burning hot or electric jolts or, you know, whatever the case may be. And this is sort of a reality that people are experiencing day to day. And um, often it's thought that this is just because this is all occurring because uh, the individual with spinal cord injury can't sort of move their foot around um, voluntarily and give, uh, you know, and experience a, um, a sensory experience that they used to, like they used to before their injury. And so the nerves just start to get confused and start sending all sorts of misfiring messages. Um, we've seen this before in people who have lost limbs. Um, they also, they get this phantom limb pain, they get um, all sorts of uh, odd sensations in a limb that is no longer there. And the way that was treated um, very effectively is with a technology uh, with a technique called mirror box therapy. So um, basically uh, what you do is you put your uh, missing 
you put your residual limb, whatever is left of your residual limb, um, into a box. And on one side of the box is a mirror. And then you put your intact limb right next to the mirror. So if you look into the mirror, you see the mirror image of your intact limb. So it looks like um, the limb that you're missing. And then from there, you can sort of move around your intact limb, you can stretch it, you can do all of the things that you wished you could do to the, um, the missing limb, because often the, the, the sort of pain that they're experiencing is like a cramp in a muscle that they can't stretch because the muscle isn't there anymore. And so by creating this mirror box environment, you can, you can see some, you can trick your brain into thinking, see the limbs there, now I'm gonna stretch it. So the cramp's gonna stop and, and the pain goes away. And this is a very, very effective way of treating uh, these sorts of uh, uh, sort of phantom limb experiences. The problem with spinal cord injury is that individuals can't voluntarily move either of their limbs. So uh, it sort of takes mirror box therapy off the table for them. So what we did was we created virtual reality environments where a person with spinal cord injury could uh, put on the goggles and observe an environment where limbs that look like their limbs are performing all sorts of tasks that might be soothing or improve their level of comfort. Um, and uh, what we've been seeing is that this creates, you know, a, a very significant reduction in pain for a lot of folks who are living with spinal cord injury and uh, what we've been working toward is just creating these virtual environment repositories uh, on YouTube where people with, with a spinal cord injury can, you know, get a very low cost um, uh, VR headset that, you know, one of the ones that you just sort of stick your phone into, get onto YouTube and watch some of the content um, as, as their method of pain relief. Um, and obviously this is a really um a really awesome way of of getting pain relief without using drugs um and without spending a lot of money on on treatments that are effective but cost a lot of cash well you mentioned that the work environment to stimulate creativity and boost creativity should be challenging and engaging and it sounds like that's an environment you know you're in every single day given the things that you're telling us that's pretty cool (laughs) you've done a good job with that (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I'd say we're um, we're never short of problems that need solving in in our our environment, and we all try and stay pretty passionate and and on point about that. Yeah, and so you you also have the opportunity to work with some high performance sports teams. Um, you know, you work with with Red Bull, some NBA teams, the USA team. So are they are they seeking you out for technologies to bring in, or are they coming to you for more creativity, or is it all of the above? Because it sounds like you're a subject matter expert in a lot of areas. Yeah, we we you know it, it tends to be a bit of a whenever we interact with high performance teams, it tends to be a bit of a conversation back and forth. You know, kind of um, just trying to understand what their needs are. You know, I, I think the biggest. Um, uh, you know, the biggest kind of lie in high performance sports uh, is that um, some, you know, you can just hire some famous high performance consultant and they're just going to come in and run the playbook and solve all of your problems. Like every high performance environment we come into, there are different needs. You know, this is obvious stuff, but yeah, you know, there are different needs. There are different sports specific uh problems that we need to solve. And so our interaction with different teams tends to be uh, different depending on who we're working with and, and what we're trying to do. Sometimes it's pure exploration. We really um, had some fun over the years working with Red Bull um, because they were just running awesome experiments uh, to try and understand what makes athletes tick, um, you know, and whether that be um, one project we did where we would we popped a bunch of uh, big wave surfers into a functional MRI scanner to look at um, how they perceive threat. And we compared it to regular wave surfers of a similar skill level. Um, so they were still Red Bull sponsored and they were still like really great surfers, but they 
they were just categorically not going to get on a hundred foot wave. Um, and we put them in an MRI scanner and we looked at their um, threat responses and, and we saw that, you know, the big wave surfers and we, we published this um, uh, not too long ago, uh, but we, we showed that the big wave surfers um, were better at regulating emotion in, um, in threat, uh, threatening situations or, or while they were being exposed to threatening situations than the regular wave surfers in a way that was actually um, pretty similar to comparisons that had been done before in like elite soldiers. So Navy SEALs, Green Berets versus um, soldiers who had just gone through basic and, um, and, and weren't you know, part of an elite, uh, elite unit. So it was really interesting to see that. And, and you know, obviously when we're doing exploration stuff like that, you never know where it's going to be useful, but it, it kind of helps us to think about selection of athletes and um, starting to understand, okay, is this innate or is this something that develops? Uh, you know, maybe the first time you get on a hundred foot wave, your brain looks exactly like a regular wave surfer, but after you make the plunge and you do it a hundred or so times, suddenly um, you're a little bit more able to regulate some of the you know these highly stressful situations or maybe it's just you're born with it and that's it and um and so we should look for it early and put them on a big wave surfer track versus a regular wave surfer track so um we do a lot of stuff like that uh understanding performance under pressure so putting uh athletes into uh controlled but seemingly uncontrolled circumstances where they need to sort of respond and we just see how they respond and what happens to their biometrics as they're responding. Um, and then we do, you know, comparatively more mundane things uh, like uh, some of the teams we work with, we, we just help with their selection criteria. So personality testing on uh, recruits to make sure that they not only have uh you know, some of the personality traits of high performers, but also they have personality traits that are going to fit in well with the existing team members so that you don't have uh, cultural issues inside of the team or, you know, or you hire a whole bunch of team members who are super nice and very agreeable and, you know, really nice, but but no one has a killer instinct or a leadership <laughs> instinct. And so you've just got a bunch of nice people who with no one taking charge. So trying to sort of explore those avenues and and how to do that more um, effectively and passively, I think is important because these days when you're doing, you know, um, uh, when, when you're doing drafting for teams, uh, all of the players are now like educated on all the tests that, that you're asking them to take. And so they, you know, they know how to train to the test. And so often, um, uh, so often they know what you want to hear already. So, a lot of what we do is using machine learning models and computer vision models that can classify personality traits without actually overtly asking them, you know, you know, the, these sort of like big five personality questions. Yeah, that's really cool because they, they definitely train for those tests. So the, the, the answers are out there. So it's pretty interesting that y'all are able to work on the backside and figure some other stuff out. Todd, do you think you're a hundred foot wave person or a regular wave person? I think I'm going to stick to just staying on the beach. I really enjoy <laughs> watching surfing. You know, I'm going to use that biophilic environment of then passively you know, going by really slow. So I think you'll find me in a lawn chair. What about you? I think I need to go for a walk and go look at some trees. <laughs> <laughs> or set up, set up a room in my house or something like that for, uh, you know, get in there and stress-free and play some nice music and, get some fake plants set up in there. I think that's what I'm going to do once I log off here. So, uh, <laughs> well, Dr. Petrino, we really, really appreciate your time today. And it was awesome. It was great to hear about some of the things you had to say about creativity and also hear about some of the things that you're doing in your lab work and uh, some of the amazing things. We hope to continue to hear some more incredible things about that. So again, we just really appreciate your time for being with us here today and, and wish you the best of luck moving forward. Oh, no worries. Uh, this was a really great chat. Glad we got to do it.
We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. To stay up to date on all things Kaiser, follow us at Kaiser Fitness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more content, you can visit our Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and at our website, www.kaiser.com. Thank you and have a great day.